In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously you moron, we both do. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe podcast, and I'm diving straight into this one because I got a whole bunch of questions. Who the fuck are you, and what do you do? Hey, uh, g'day. My name's Jason Cook, and I make helmets for skydivers. Jason Cook, you are a tough man to nail down because you are busy. Well, yeah, I'm... Uh, and actually, I was talking to Cola today. She said, you've been trying to hustle me for a couple of years. <laughs> Sorry. And actually, I've been listening to your podcast, mate, and uh, you've had some heavy hitters coming on, and uh, I don't think I was worthy. Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bunch of crap. That's a bunch of crap. No, no, straight up, mate. Like, some of the dudes that you've had hanging out on this podcast – like, their stories are just off-tap inspirational. I go, fuck, I wish I could be them. 
And uh, and then you keep asking me, I'm like, oh, God, what am I going to contribute? Well, you know, the cool thing about it is we talked about it off podcast yesterday. Um, It's we're both really big fans of the friends and the people that we know in the sport. And our way Mm -hmm. to contribute to the sport is to try and help our friends to get a little bit better and do a little bit more so I can be a bigger fan of these people that I'm watching do this amazing shit. Or live vicariously through our friends. That's all Absol- I like. Hang on to their coattails, mate, and, and live their ride and journey they, and, and occasionally they- get a little crumb snippet that they feed you that keeps you more of a fanboy on, on their life, right? Absolutely. Well, and that's honestly, that for me is what it's about. Uh, That's one of the funnest things about the podcast is I get to talk to all of these heroes, old and new, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. I've got fucking 22 year old heroes now. How weird Mm. is that? (laughs) Oh, Especially, oh, that's a hard part, mate, because, you know, um, talk about evolution of the sport. I mean, since we've been kicking around, Hasn't this thing just gone off the tap, evolution? Like, if you're going to look at, try and spitball what the next 10 years would look like, I would have no clue. No, me neither. No no clue other than, uh, I mean, I remember watching Week, the wingsuit dude fly down the Alps in the 2000s and everyone going, what the hell is this kid doing? Yep. And now the proximity flying is the norm in the base world. Oh, I know. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. Now, uh, before we get too deep into what's going on now, let's talk about how you got started in the sport. What what was the the catalyst to you, not necessarily skydiving, of course, but doing anything extreme, and how did that lead to jumping out of airplanes? Oh, mate, so I was an apprentice instrument technician, and uh, my mate, he was an apprentice, figure and turn up. We used to drink beers after work, went, hey, you want to go skydiving? Anyway, bunch of bravado. Bunch of dudes went, yeah, pick me. I think I was yeah, I just turned 21, like a couple months earlier. Long story short, he booked us in. I had the car to do the pickups on the Saturday to go to the drop zone, and I only picked him up, and off we went. So hit the drop zone, and uh, this is 91. Said, dude, there's just me, him, and another dude uh, doing a static line course. And long story short, end of the day, uh, our instructor, Leonie, cool chick, and we were all punks. Go, I said, oh, what's the cool thing about the sport? And she goes, free fall. And I said, well, what am I doing? She went, no, nah, you're not doing that. And um, <laughs> I said, how do I do that? And she went, well, look, we can do, you can do AFF. It's another 100 bucks. Um, I went, mm, okay. And I didn't, I was an apprentice, so I didn't have 100. Anyway, the drop zone owner come and saw me. He said, if you want to do AFF, pay me next week. And I went, done. So so two dids AFF. Sorry, static line. I did my AFF. Landed up the fucking amongst the trees at the end of the drop zone and then got roped into the people on the drop zone just grabbed me and my mate. We rang the bell, so we drank, couldn't drive home, had to stay the night. And it, it was like a – man, there must have been like eight or nine people there. And the girls just went, hey, you guys are cool. We call it an airgasm. And then the older dudes in their 50s said, we see it in your eyes, mate. You're going to be skydivers. 
and uh, we stayed the night and partied with 10 people because that's all that was at the drop zone in the sure. night. Like, yeah, it was like pre um, um, point break days. And anyway, sure. um, I couldn't afford to go and do my next jump next week because I had to pay the drop zone on the back. So what, we missed a week. Me and my mate went back. He did stage on AFF. And another jump, I did. I paid my drop zone on the back, stage two. And then shit, mate, the place, the drop zone just grabbed me and my mate and went, here, come with us on this journey. <laughs> and they went, then, oh, guess what? We're having a week skydiving. It's called a learning curve camp. You want to come finish off AFF? It's only like three weeks after that. I said, what do you mean we can have the whole place to ourselves for a week? And they went, yeah, yeah, yeah. So me and my buddy turned up. And uh, the three of us doing finishing off AFF and two and three instructors, and we had a one eight two in the drop zone to ourselves. We finished off the AFF, and these two women, female instructors of ours, dude, they grabbed us by the balls and went, "You're coming on this ride," and fucking taught us some amazing shit <laughs> and amazing times. Um, yeah, mate, those those girls got hooks into us early. And uh, and with the drop zone owner as well, and the rest is history. I started skydiving at Ramblers Parachute Centre at Tagulua, and um, big big history of um, breeding amazing skydives and having a lot of fun. Um, yeah, mate, I owe a lot to those people, the women. Well, you, I mean, ladies. it sounds to me like the DZO was a genius because he saw it in your eyes right then. Yeah, oh. I, I can lend, lend this kid a hundred dollars and I got him for life. Yeah. 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 No, he did. Yeah. He <laughs> did. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a cool Fonzie old Macca. Well, oh, what a great I'm... time too, to start skydiving because if you're starting the pre boom, the modern boom of skydiving, generally you already, you already named it is kind of marked by the pre and post point break days. Sure. No, you're spot on. And, and a lot of that movie come out. I think maybe the next year, 92, maybe 91. No, 92, I think. And, uh, and then the place just erupted. Like, I, I had enough jumps by then where I could actually start shooting outside camera. Nice. And then, uh, of course, that place is filled up with tandems. And, and we had a Bonanza, Twin Bonanza was our jump aircraft. Yeah, no shit. Nice. Oh, oh. Like, we had a Twin Bonanza. We used to put seven outside the aircraft. So three on the wing, three on the door. Two off the tail, one inside, you know. Um, but wing walk the aircraft as a young punk. Um, and you may also in a hundred jumps, you can start shooting video, 200 jumps, you can start filming terms AFF. So that was the go-to. Sure. And um that paid for the fun. You know, I mean yeah. it's kind of it's crazy because you 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 talk about being able to, especially on an aircraft like a Bonanza, wing walking oh. and climbing like a jungle gym all over this thing. And I'm sure you do the same thing. I look back and I can't believe people let us do the shit that we did. Oh, dude, like I remember the the drops on used to fly the twin bonanza a bit. And uh he's he was white white knuckle airlines. He'd be able to get off the fucking wing, you know, be <laughs> tapping on the window, waving waving at him. Be like, go, go. The plane would be, we'd be buffing and shaking. And uh, the best was the rear float position. And I did see a dude actually shuffle all the way back onto the tail and sit on the tail once. And, um, hey man, that was our jump plane. And I'll tell you, so no door. I remember 
I'm going to do them one of my AFF jumps. Oh, and we had Cup 3 uh, AADs on our main. So pin pullers on the main. <laughs> and uh, it was our student gear. Anyway, of course, you get up over, I don't know, 4,000 feet and then pull the pin to arm them. Anyway, this thing went da 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 boom, fired. Hole chewed into the dude behind me. Anyway, no door. Like, fuck. Okay, hold this. And we pack the rig. Okay, reset the ID. Like, rip, uh, pull up through the thing, reset it. And they're looking at me going, are you cool? I'm like, oh, fuck, okay. <laughs> pull it again. It went da-da-da-da-da. Fired again. Hit the dude in the chest behind me. They were back on the floor of the plane. And they went, we're not resetting this thing. Anyway, actually, you probably know this guy, John Stewart, the owner of Guam. Yeah, yeah. Saipan. Ah, so he was the he was um the Kahuna coach in Australia. He's on the load. He my instructor looked at me. This chick goes, "You're gonna pull your main parachute." I went, "Yeah." He's like, "We're going." <laughs> John Stewart's looking at her, going, "What the what the fuck?" He went, "Well, he said he's gonna pull." Off we went. Nice <laughs> H five out of that bonanza. You know it's uh, it, it's. Oh, anyway. it, it's funny. Um, it's it's stories like that, or how they came up with all the rules that govern skydiving today. <laughs> I do. I just remember laying on the floor trying to repack this spring-loaded pole chute into this rig, looking at another guy who's on his AFF jump more scared than me. I'm like, yep. "What about, mate? Like, I've got shit going on behind me. I can't even see." Yep. So yeah, mate, that was um, amazing times. Um and um yeah definitely got sucked into the sport. So did yeah. did 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 the Point Break Revolution? Did it have like an immediate huge effect in Australia, like it did in the oh, states? Oh, absolutely, mate. We we went from me no tan like one or two tans on the drop zone a weekend to like two or forty and fifty and um shit man you know a day and then. We only had Cessnas and a twin Bonanza and, um, like, shit, mate, just rotating those old, you know, long-term aircraft around. Sure. We do five video jumps a day, five tandem jumps a day, and then, and then, like, the Australian turbine industry grew pretty much out of our little wee drop zone. Another one of the Kahuna guys was a farmer that used to fly in and jump in into our drop zone with a 172. So he bought a 182 to have on the drop zone and then bought another one and another one. Had them all farmed out locally, 182s. And then he rang me up one day and he goes, hey, Cookie, I'm actually buying a caravan and I'm going to fly it from America to Australia. My caravan, what the hell is, like, are we living in that thing? <laughs> and um, can you, I was at the Nationals, he goes, can you put an announcement over that Tabula is going to have a caravan? And uh, I'm like, don't look, mate, don't bullshit me here. Are we serious? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm flying that thing over with another dude, Miles Elswing, his name was. Yeah, it's on. It's like, and then he became the caravan guy. One caravan, two caravan, three, four, five, mate. He had caravans coming out his ass, but all pawned out around Australia off the back of learning about 182s in Australia or locally. Sure. Um, but yeah, the, that was the beginning of the Point Break Revolution. And then once he was the mastermind of the aircraft, making sure maintenance was taken care of, um, which he was amazing at, 
um, everyone jumped on board those aircraft and he could he could rotate his planes in and out of your drop zone. Sure. And um, him with a premium, but shit, man, he provided good planes around the country. Well, yeah. and I mean, if there's one thing that we know, um, skydivers are willing to pay a premium to get the good stuff. I mean, just look at modern equipment and modern jump aircraft. Clearly, we pay what's required to go out and play. We'll starve ourselves to death to do it, but we want the nice yeah. toys, you know. Of course, for sure. Well, and I came Hold into on. the scene a, a couple of years after you did. It was getting a bit more well-established, but I still came into mm. it in a great time to decide to become a working skydiver because mm. it was still relatively unregulated. You know, I mean, you, obviously you had to have ratings to be an instructor and stuff, but being a camera flyer, that happened because the DZO or the guy that ran the camera concession liked you and you did a decent enough job to not fuck it up. Yeah, spot on. Uh, you know, man, same for me. Yeah, exactly the same. And then, then you become a, a commodity, right, for all the operations because, hey, it's just, I mean, as much as it is a fantastic marketing tool, there is a little bit of fat in it for the operator as well. So it's like, sure. hey, I'm sitting on another load and I'm getting a bit more cream and, and you're getting paid too. So I get it. And, and fortunately enough, on the back of that, we got the jump numbers up to then become instructors, right, because we're doing recurrent. Yep. You know, we have to fly close to dams. We have to get there quick. We were jumping from 10,000 feet too. So yeah. you, know, you got to get you got to get your ship together to get underneath stuff quick and exit-wise. And um, and then you just current. So when yep. when they ask you, would you like to be do your AFF rating? It was like, oh, okay, no brainer. Yeah. Um, it was a bit of a late starter to the tandem stuff. I think I had I definitely had over a thousand jumps before. I, I started doing tandems. Sure. And, um, and which I was, is, man, I was cool. about the same, man. I, I was, I, I, it, honestly, if it had been up to me, I would have been a camera guy for life. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the drop zone that I worked at, uh, um, they started to realize quite quickly that us camera guys were having more fun flying our own parachutes. <laughs> And making really good money, you know. So all of a sudden, the tandem instructors are like, "Fuck you guys, we want a part of that." And, you know, have to carry those big rigs to the aircraft ten times a day. Yeah, spot yeah. uh, on. No, yeah, yeah, I mean, looking back, I don't blame the guys, but I mean, at the time, I was like, I don't want to do fucking tandems. I don't want to do this. And then all of a sudden, I, I, I fell into enjoying it. But uh, um, it, it was definitely not my choice. I would have been a camera guy forever. And I was well over a thousand jumps before I got that tandem rating. Yeah. Well, I look, I mean, look back and it, just, it was that, you know, that formality, that next step. I remember, um, I remember my, my buddy, he was a, a, um, a rigger and he had a, he had a writing, it was a, a rigger that could teach me to become a, uh, like a, a rigger as well, and he goes, okay. "Come on, man, you gotta pack your own reserves." Oh, fuck that shit, man. <laughs> anyway, no, 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 I'll teach you. Anyway, get a new tandem rig come in. He goes, "Oh, I got a new rig to to assemble for the drop zone owner. Come and assemble it." Anyway, I jumped that thing the next morning. I had a malfunction on it, and I packed <laughs> packed the reserve on it, and um, I had the stupidest malfunction. But I remember getting off it, going. Uh, oh shit! Oh okay, life is good. Anyway, I looked at—I did all my pack jobs, and then guys, you need to do the exam. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit, mate. 
Like, yeah. You can just pay, I'll pay to pack my reserves. Yeah. You know? I was kind of the same, you know. I mean, I, I worked at uh, Skydive Las Vegas that had an excellent master rigger who would do courses and stuff. But I, I was I was so busy with jumping and working. I was such a workhorse at that time. The yeah. idea of spending what little spare time I had in the loft sewing shit up just didn't appeal to me. Yeah, me too. Oh, the pressure! It was uh, like it's a serious business. Yeah. Um. Um. And you know. I mean, yeah, mate, it's a serious business because shit was ever-changing, like new regulations or there was a rigging mod or you got to keep up to date on that stuff, and that wasn't my game at the time. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's a full-time thing. I, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. it would appeal to me now a lot more. Uh, I think that's just age. You know, I've settled into enjoying that meticulous stuff, whereas before yeah. it just seemed tedious. Um, now I think it would be a little bit more fun, but – I don't see myself becoming a rigger now either. <laughs> yeah, mate, it's a tough game. And um, the thing about it, we, we need these people in our industry. Yes. Like, if you think about it in Australia, you go, shit, man, there's not around. And dudes do dedicate their lives to it. Yep. Hats off to them. Like, brother, hats off because you need some equipment. You just don't turn up with a, a you know, a couple of pull-up cords and a, and a bobbin, <laughs> you know, and a big <laughs> yeah. shit. Like you need proper tools. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, that's why we we sure. we definitely picked the easiest route because, especially when you and I got started, to become a cameraman, all you had to have was a fucking camera. <laughs> I know. You know? Hey, look, I started, mate. We'll jump on those um, VHS stuff. Oh yeah. And uh, and the the picture would just trip out. Flood, I'll take flood. You get in that position and suddenly, oh, you couldn't see it. And then you get underneath and life is gold. Come deployment, it would just, you know, if you sat in the wrong spot. So, um, and that's how I got pretty much kicked off is that I started making, I bought a bottle of like a gallon of latex rubber and I, you know, electrical taped up all the holes on a VHS camera. Right? For a, bit, a week, I just painted latex on and I made it like a, like a, a quarter inch rubber condom over this camera that I could peel off, and that kept the wind out. It was really sh- oh, just enough you could peel the microphone off and do all the ground footage, sure, and stuff, and then condom down off you go. And then, um, that's how it pretty much started that process of me assembling cameras on helmets. And, um, and then I made, uh, I remember a new SVHS was the new thing. I bought a VHS. Like a tape player, it cost me two grand. Anyway, I was like, oh shit, I've got to build a box because the, actually, I've made the tape, the condom, and it wasn't working. So I, I made a foam plug just by hand, and it was a massive big thing. And then I pulled a mold off it. Actually, no, I gave it to a boat builder to pull the mold off. It took forever. So I just bloody went to a fiberglass shop and said, what do I need? And, and then I made a box, one. And then I may, and then someone said, I want, I want one. I'm like, oh, that took me all week. And um, yeah, that was the kind of starting point to making tooling. And actually, 93, I went to Paris to buy my first brand new rig from Square One. Mm. And there was a guy named Greg Hunter called Headhunter Helmets. Yep. Had a small rear entry, like 15 degree up. Yep. And I bought one of those bad boys, took it home, put my box on it. And uh, 
I had to say this, mate. I, I knocked it off. I took a mould off it. I stripped that helmet out, took a mould off it, and then I put a ski boot buckle in the jaw that you ratchet dial up. Yep. So you had, you had a dial in the chin that put two cables to bring the back in. And that was my, I mean, that's how I kind of got kicked off. And this is all this weekend warriors shit we're talking about. I was working and having fun and jumping and people were like, oh, I'll go and see Cookie for a helmet. I'd have to go to the parents' garage and, and tinker for a couple of weeks and <laughs> the shit together. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, especially back then, you kind of had to learn how to do it yourself with a lot of sure. that shit. I mean, I remember uh, a guy by the name of Sammy Popov who runs Skydive TV um, yeah. showed me a trick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah. He uh, he showed me a, a really cool trick using uh, just a rocker switch uh, and a mm. telephone plug so that you could wire the telephone plug so you, it would plug in and you wouldn't have the chance for the still camera to accidentally unplug. It would lock in because of the telephone cable. And then the rocker yeah. switch would just sit against my lip and I could just click my lip instead uh -huh. of having a bite switch. Yeah. And But he figured all of that out. And of course, you take all sure. these little tricks that somebody else has and kind of jerry-rig mm. your own system throughout the way until guys like you started making helmets that thought of all that shit for us. Oh, yeah, look, um, I mean, I had, I used to buy those um, 20 milliliter hypodermic needles without the needle. And then, so I'd chop the needle off and then run the cable through the bottom and put a switch in the top. So I used to, all my stills were done by hand. Yeah. I, once I shit was ratcheted up on my face, if I put something on my mouth, I'll be like, <laughs> I'd be. I'd be like a hooker at a fucking blowjob convention, mate. I'd start gagging. Oh, oh. Like, <laughs> yeah, you couldn't do it. Like, no, I mean, I couldn't do it. I couldn't have anything in my mouth. Yeah, no, I was so, the same um, way. I was no, exactly. I had to have it in my hand. So I'd be threading cables up my jumpsuit, little plug, plug it in. Yeah, well, I'd that's. I got. I got into the first time I was shooting video. That was still going on. You still had. Uh, you're still switching your hand. Uh, and mm. the the first helmet I ever jumped was actually a loaned helmet by a guy named Kevin Love loaned me his headhunter helmet to shoot video of him and some other people. And that's the first time I'd ever put a camera helmet on. And it was yeah, one yeah. of those one of those old headhunter helmets. And it was I mean, it was awesome for what it was. I think the best thing was it was 15 degrees up. So you could get right underneath a tandem and not have to crank your neck up. Yep. You could kind of sit up like chest high and just like and the thing would be perfect, right? Oh, man, I loved it. Even for doing four-way videos and that kind of stuff, it was man, it was a good bit of gear. Um, just the weight and and uh, so Richard Stewart does that name ring a bell? Um, so Richard Stewart filmed Sky Surf. Actually, he filmed Paris Air Moves back in the day. He was a four-way camera guy that was nearly on that Paris auto crash. Oh, he was actually off the load that day, but per but. Let me think of the name of the Sky Surf guy. Um, Tom, no, is it uh, a Paris guy? Smith. Oh, uh, uh, Rob. Are you talking? You're talking Rob. Rob Harris. Yeah. Look, Rob Harris. Mm. So anyway, pa so this Aussie guy switched over from filming belly guys to filming um, filming Sky Surf. Anyway, he came out coming back to Australia with a mega helmet with all this multiple like camera gear, just like Norma Cans and all. Man, 
you know, all the Kahuna dudes were like, holy shit, he would wear that shit on every jump. Now you were you were doing a um shooting video and doing the instruction stuff too, but you chased mm. the competition stuff for a while as well, yeah? I did, yeah, yeah. So those couple of chicks who from the drop zone got me and my buddy started. We went to our first nationals, oh, hundred jumps or something like that, hundred and thirty jumps. So we did four-way with those girls. Man, those chicks were so cool. I, like they, they used to do, they used to build biplanes after every four-way and land them. These <laughs> girls, like serious, awesome. I'd run, I'd run for the clouds, mate. Like seriously, actually, I, word of a lie, I um, I landed a biplane on my thirteenth jump uh, in student gear. Yeah, <laughs> so um. So I finished my student status, 10 jumps, drops on an owner, puts me up with a, a crew legend in Australia to get my jumps up to get my A licence. I do a two-way with this dude. He doesn't wear goggles at all. He's a slip of a man. He probably weighs about, I don't know, 120 pounds ring wet and um, flies in a style tuck to keep up with me. Anyway, I open. I open. I'm in my 300-square-foot main parachute. <laughs> right. And here this, clear your ears. Anyway, Hobbsy comes over, and I see his footprints on my parachute, and he goes, break. Next minute, he top-docked me and then goes, and then debriefed the jump, and then he goes, <laughs> you want to land it? And I went, hell yeah, what do I do? He goes, hands up, let me steer. And he goes, when do you want to flare? Just yell out flare. He put me... Dead center in the P's, which helped me with my accuracy for my A license. And he turns to me and he goes, You want to do it again? I'm like, Fuck yeah. So we go up, another two way, I'm ready, clear the ears. Hobbsy comes over, so Nobsy comes over. I'm flying break, top docks me. I'm like, Cool. And the next jump, he stows me right into the P's, eh? Like, <laughs> I got an extra couple of accuracy jumps. Sure. Um, and my buddy, um, Actually, a local guy, Sarge, who's an actual Aussie gold medalist in crew. He's a legend in crew in Australia. He's shot slide film of these landings with me and my student gear <laughs> landing in the peas, right? So I thought I was fucking king shit. Oh, I bet. But, but anyway, oh, man, I'm digressing. Yeah, so this girl's took me four way, and then my mates, you know, you develop friendships on the drop zone. We went and did. More four way, and then oh man, I remember '94. Jack Jeffries came to Australia coaching at a, an event. I said to my mate, "We're in we're in the northern states, and the southern states is where all the the belly, the hardcore reality work was going on." So we went down to a Jack Jeffries event. Me and a mate, I ended up filming eight way. I ended up filming competition stuff. We did a couple of jumps with um, a couple of the southern locals, you know. And uh, we put our hat name in the in the ring or a hat yep. in the ring. So hey, look, we we seriously want to compete. Um, and then she did. I went to a tryout in Sydney, set the Southern States, and um, she man, I didn't make the team. I was like, oh fuck! And I I worked this away job for months and I had all the money to go to world meet, and I wanted to go to world meet, but I didn't make the team. Um, you know, I've got, man, 
you know, you got to try us. Sorry. <laughs> right. There's always one dude, right? And my buddy, he's my business partner, he was on the team. He's like, oh, fuck, we were sorry. So <laughs> long story short, I ended up teaming up with a couple of ex-Aussie champions and did four-way at our nationals. And we, we kind of we beat this this team, right, the two four-ways out of the eight-way. Sure. Um, we beat them at the nationals. Oh, there's and, some um, satisfaction there. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and there was some, um, you know, that was having a, the team was having a bit of angst at the time. And uh, and they said, this is 96. Oh, and they actually went to America and trained in Italy for like two months. Mm. And, and they said, um, look, we're looking for a couple of slots. Do we want more? I'm like, sure, mate. So, yeah, so we, I went to the 97 World Meeting Turkey. We trained in Arizona for nearly three months, wow. three and a half months. And, um, and yeah, talk about coming away from that competition. That's when the um, Golden Knights, like, broke or smashed every record on the plane. Right? Sure. And that was amazing to watch. But I definitely come away really dejected. I didn't feel like I um, allowed all the experiences of training, competing, like, you know, I was a punk. I was just a kid. I kind sure. of look back and go, "What did you? What happened? Ten rounds of three months of training and all this money and all this sacrifice. You know, what are you doing it for, mate?" And I yeah. had to question myself. And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm doing it for bloody good fun." Sure. And uh, and but ten rounds, it is important. Ten rounds, but you know, it gave me a real taste for it. And then, yeah, mate, I just kept chasing that dream with my mates. Yeah, yeah good guys. Good fun. We got I mean, it, by, it's a shitload of fun, right? Yeah. yeah, mate, it is, yeah. And we, being in Arizona, we got coached by the Airspeed lads and did some Airspeed Appreciation Day. So four on four with those guys, right? They schooled us good on not just skydiving. Actually, they schooled us on a lot of life lessons. Sure. can never be taken back, you know, like, they schooled us on how to be good humans and how to be good teammates and how to be better in yourself. Those those blokes, they actually laid a big pla- platform for our team that set us instead for probably, I mean, for the life of me, sure. uh, for a team. Um, yeah, it was definitely uh, like, you know, it was humbling. And um, at the same time, if you want to be the fucking best, um, you know, you have to play by these rules. You can't be the dick. You know? Sure. Was good at that. Mm. Well, that's that's the thing. We we talked about this uh, yesterday as well off the podcast. Uh, the the community is so powerful in so many mm. ways, and that it's funny when you get to the the amount of time that people like you and I have had in the sport. Um, jumping is the least important part of the sport for me. It's the community and it's cheering on those guys that are hard charging, but it's lessons that you pick up from guys like airspeed that just last you the rest of your life. Sure. And there's so many of them, isn't there? Like, you you just, you just got to pick like, there's so many amazing qualities about people in our sport. Oh yeah. Yes. From being funny to being serious to being, you know, calculating to being just fucking amazing humans. Like, man, you just want to pick a little bit of that out of each one's soul. Yes. Um, and put them in your own back pocket. Yep. And when you're in sticky situations, 
or whatever, you're facing a little bit of a crisis, you know, there's going to be some personality that's going to rise above. You pull that dude's attitude out of your back pocket and put it into um, practice, you know. And, oh, and, absolutely. Um, I remember I was um, at uh, um, at Omar Al-Hijalan's birthday. Um, uh, oh, this was – this was, oh, yeah. I mean, it's the Omar, right? Yeah. That, man. yeah. Oh, Mike, he was at that world meet in Turkey in 97 just showing the world – Showing the world what was achievable. Yes. Oh my, like, what are we watching here, mate? Yeah, yeah, it was inhuman. Yeah, it was absolutely inhuman. I've never been more blown away yeah. by the flying that him and the Chronicles boys and, and the clowns oh. did. And I remember sitting at his birthday. And if you know Omar, he's just the sweetest guy and he's a very thoughtful, very caring person. But there's two people that are looking at him. There's the person that's the big fan who sees the way athletes are in other sports and oh. how high and mighty they can be. And then there's skydiving where this guy is a hero of mine, but he's also mm. this huge sweetheart. And I asked him in the middle of his birthday party, I'm like, how the fuck are you this nice man? <laughs> how, how do you do it? Because it just blew me away that someone oh. could be that inspiring and also that accessible. Yeah, and and that's oh, if you talk about accessible, I'm going to Eloy after after training there a lot and looking at um oh, like the core sorry, the um the Arsenal guys. And yeah, uh, yeah. and actually you can just flow actually not to select certain groups, but it flows on to everyone in that industry, you know, or on the drop zone is that at the end of the day, I'd like to just go home. Yeah. <laughs> these guys, these guys will give you their undivided attention all day, debrief you, want you to be the best person of yourself, and then they'll go, guess what? Come and have dinner with me and hang out. And oh, by the way, we got our mate turning up and this guy, and and then I'm thinking, don't you guys ever sleep? Right. Like the community that. Um, that we're blessed with really definitely know how to bring and the names, the list of those people just go on and on. Oh, it does. They know how to just bring people in. And then, we, and for me especially, then you get to let your personality shine. Yes. You know, I reckon I was, I was a, oh, man, I was a different rooster prior to skydiving. And then you get a lot of self confidence in being yourself. Yep. Because, and because people allow you to be yourself unjudgmental. Yep. And, um, and then you go, Jesus Christ, aren't we fun? Aren't we? Everyone's just so cool. Oh, yeah. Well, the coolest thing, too, is you're right. You get to kind of become uh, the person that you want to be for sure in the community. Yeah. And you're allowed the freedom to do all the, the stupid shit or the good shit and cool. know that the people that you're hanging with will tell you if you're being an idiot or oh, will yeah. tell you. Yeah. And it's great because you, you you not only get all this amazing advice, but you thicken up your skin because skydivers are the first ones to tell you when you're being a prick. Oh. <laughs> For sure, you know. Which and, is uh, great. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, I mean, I'm going to throw one at you, a bit of a helmet-related thing, is that, um, you know, we've got some really great coaching back in the day. We're at the days of exceptional coaching and to connect with coaching and, not not just from a from a engineering personal perspective, just general life perspective. So when it comes time to building products, 
he kind of reached out to those people that went, hey, what do you want? And right. they didn't kind of know what they want. And um, also, too, we had a, a debrief rapport that was, like, unbiased, wasn't taken personally, which is hard to do. Like, getting constructive criticism and taking it on board can be hard. Sure. Even if it's personality-related, because they'll, scholars will tell you straight, you know, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, pull yeah. your head out of your ass and stop thinking like that and think like this. Yep. So when it comes time to build some helmety staff, we enlisted, you know, we reached out to those people to entrust to give us good feedback. Right. And then went away and tinkered and came back and kept showing them stuff and kept coming, you know. There's a bit, definitely a two-way thing going on between us and our peers in the, in the sport. Sure. Um, and, um, and that just helped us because it took a bunch of years. Like, yeah, we were working our rings off. And also, too, it was a bit of um, uh, um, straight up. I couldn't be a, I couldn't be a, my personality doesn't have me living on a drop zone, banging out of 2,000 jumps a year, trying to be a world champion. That is definitely not me. Right. But if I can build something that, that you envisage and I'm going to put all those hours into making something that you're going to appreciate, that's what I'm actually quietly all about. Sure. Is, um, is, Tell us what you want. I'm going to make something. It might not be right, but we might start the path of are we going to discover something that is correct, you know? Sure. Um, well, and that's where that's where you and I are similar in that uh, both of us were – I was a good skydiver. I am a good skydiver, but I'm not a, I'm not an outstanding skydiver, especially not by today's standards. I'm just a drogue-throwing, meat-hauling camera guy that did a good job. But I tried to find ways to give back to the sport in more than I could just jumping. And you've done the same, though, with the helmets. I mean, I did it by writing for Blue Skies and doing stuff like this. Mm. But you did it by, again, adding something to the community through all the work that you did with the helmets, which is incredible. Oh, look, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I go, <laughs> sometimes it was a necessity. I needed shit to put on my head. Sure. Other times I go, wouldn't it be cool if you had one of them? Um, and look, we didn't, I don't, up until probably 2010, we weren't blazing trails. Sure. Like when you talk about Omar and Olav, Zipsa and those guys and a bunch of other things, just trailblazers like Louis, Pine Down Mount, like there are people that have blazed trails. Sure. Like Greg Hunter from Hunter Helmets, he was blazing the trail with that thing. And then you look at the Troy Widgery factory guy, he was blazing trails with that one. Sure. You know, basically we were, we were coming along satisfying a need for people that wanted stuff. And um, I think it wasn't until um, we built a gas in 2008 um, off the back of lots of feedback. And they went, look, dude, you got me. We're breaking down our noses by doing block 19, you know, we need to have a hard visor. We need to have a thick visor. And uh, and that kind of stuff hadn't been done in our sport. Right. I think that was a time that we that took a bunch of years and a, and a ship kind of saving up to kind of tra- blaze a trail for ourselves. Sure, sure. Um, and to build something that was a bit off spec than what everything else was getting around. At the same time, man, the wind tunnels were just kicking off, mate. I was spending hours in that Orlando tunnel coaching and training and they wanted low jaw, see your mouth, big communication, smack me in the face, I'm not going to get hurt stuff. Right. So I think that's when we 
mobilizing our own kind of trial in the helmet world. Sure. Just surely off the back of pure functionality. Give me the list. What do you want? Right. Can we make it? Um, and um, I think that and with my, you know, it's not just me. It's a bunch of us. Um, kind of look at looking just purely listening to the market. We built, I think, thirty different types of camera boxes year after year. New camera comes out, new box. We're machining lens bodies. We're machining when the Schumacher quick release mount become unavailable. She do. We were actually we bought our first CNC off the back of trying to build a mount for that was, you know, less sure. than a quarter of less than three eighths of an inch thick to put on helmets. Like when that clicking, I think it was Schumacher was the brand become unavailable, mate. We went to we need to make something, you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, man, that's just a little bit of history. A couple of world meets in there, um, uh, you know, up until t- 2003. I think we we went to a bunch of world championships and and uh, with my business partner Jeremy, and um, and I think 2003. Uh, we built a box for a Sony PC 107 camera, I think it was, or 105, right. 105, I think it was. And we set up a, um, a advert in Scholar Mag at a delay. Yeah. And uh, I've got a buddy of mine who's a jumper to do the artwork. We've got a credit card machine. We made 30 of these. We gave them to his missus, to, all boxed up. Okay, <laughs> let's go to a world meet. And we came back, we sold out. Had orders, and I said to my mate Jeremy, um, I said, Fuck, we've got a credit card machine and all this money in the bank, and we don't even have a business. <laughs> we, we might get ourselves in trouble. So, we basically used the money that we made off the, these boxes that we built, and then that actually paid for the for the registr- company registration. Sure. And, uh, and um, yeah, man, the, the well, rest is that was kind of the start. I mean, it's funny because I, I think back to all the equipment that I owned and I, and I started mm-hmm. out with the old Hi8 cameras and then moved into the mini DV and yep. I can track my evolution as a camera flyer with cameras, helmets mm-hmm. and boxes. And yeah, boxes, none yeah. of these yeah. kids that are jumping nowadays know what the hell we're talking about with a camera yeah. box to stop a tape from fluttering because they don't remember yeah. what a tape is, <laughs> which is great. But well, so I'm I'm linked up on uh, um, uh, a fantastic Facebook page that you may have heard of called uh, the Beginner Skydiving Forum. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm on there too. I think. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic. They've got like sixty three thousand members. Not all of them active. Oh yeah, um, a, a lot of people that are learning how and just getting started and everything. And and uh, um, so he, for them to hear the evolution of all this stuff that uh, happened is always a lot of fun uh it's always very interesting and i get a lot of feedback from them going you guys used to have to do what (laughs) and it's uh, especially with equipment it's that way as well and and uh, especially the helmets and it's got to be pretty wild for you after as many years as you've been doing it to take a look at any one of the you know world record jumps that gets done and see your logo on more than half of the heads in free fall that's gotta be pretty. Uh, that's gotta be oh, cool. Yeah, like talk about yeah. proud. Yeah. Talk about like, blown away. Um, I think um, you know, humbled that um people, I mean, you know, hey, mate, I'm a pro-choice dude. 
technically, if you look at any of the rules and regulations, and I was one of them too, 100 jumps, I'm not wearing a helmet, get fucked. Sure. You know, I was one of those guys. And then, uh, and then we're like, how do we put our audibles? And I actually got grounded going low because I mean, because I wasn't looking at my altimeter. Sure. And we had to put straps and stuff on. Um, but yeah, mate, just looking at all the big way stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, remember, we're a bunch of belly flies. Sure. And, and, and we really targeted that. And when we looked at the free flies, you know, from probably 2006 to, to even probably in 2010, you know, or 12, these guys are running open-faced helmets with upside-down cameras on the side, right? Yep. They weren't wearing full-face helmets, okay? Um, that was their style. That was their gig. When we were making gear for that, but also we are making gear for uh, the belly flies, which was full-face, low-jawed stuff. Tunnels was a light switch moment for everyone. Mm. And went, wow, we got to, we can actually go indoor and do this stuff, you know. And now look at the disciplines that have come out of that, you know. Sp- um, you know, wind tunnels. Oh yeah, they're off the tar, right? We, we can do our belly stuff in there, and then we've got dynamic. Also, too, we've got the freestyle stuff. We've got kids, we've got actually disabilities, bloody fall in the wind tunnel. So our helmet little world of cameras and belly flies and definitely grew. <laughs> yeah. Um, it definitely grew. And then the friggin' challenges, like now they're talking, uh, the speed flies want to do 600 kilometers an hour, you know, and um, well, okay, that's a whole other need right there to build a product that can go. And we built some, done some mods for some guys that, you know, really go over 500. Sure. Uh, probably to go 600, you probably gonna need a new helmet. You did it, you did it five years ago. You probably do now. You probably need a new rig, yeah, and you need a new neck brace to to deflect some air, and then you you need a new helmet to match all that aerodynamic sure. profile, you know. Um, same with indoor skydiving, uh, you know, they got they run at 100%, they're flying every angle. They can't have the visor move. They can't have the helmet move. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely still challenges sure. that we, we're facing the design. It's, um, it's, but it's, I don't know what's next. I mean, shit, what do you uh, reckon? Oh, God, I have no idea, man. I mean, if you'd have asked me 15 years ago, I wouldn't have seen any of this shit coming. I certainly didn't see the tunnel revolution coming because I started out as a tunnel rat in the Vegas tunnel wearing big yeah. baggy suits. <laughs> You know, so, yeah, yeah, man. That's, yeah, that that was literally my first gig in the air. I was an instructor in that tunnel, you know. I mean, so right. to yeah. With the yeah. big mud across Kimbo's helmets, my absolutely. Mom. I've got a couple hundred hours in that tunnel. Dude, summertime would have been horrendous, my we used Your to have to sweat shit bags, I'll tell you what. We'd we'd have to get out of the tunnel. We'd run across the alley and jump in the motel swimming pool that was right behind the tunnel, go back into the tunnel dripping wet and be dry like 30 seconds oh. into a session. It was brutal. Yeah, man, that's pretty hardcore. That is for sure. Yeah, it was a great way to learn, though. And and like anything, we we didn't know how hardcore it was until you're looking back at it. Oh. <laughs> you know. Mate, oh, I mean, I went in there a couple of years back. I was like, wow, what? Okay. Yeah. You were having fun. That's the main thing. Yep. Yeah. 
I mean, it's uh, like I said, it's it's got to be wild to to be able to see something that you guys uh, collectively have worked so hard to put together and on all these jumps and and on all the drop zones, but even seeing kids in the wind tunnel that might never mm-hmm. make a skydive or wearing cookie helmets flying around in the wind tunnel. That's got to so, be cool. It is real cool. It is <laughs> real cool. And, and um, you know, what can, I mean, my, you know, blessed is a word, um, surprised, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, actually at the back end, um, we are and have always been pretty heavily Designed orientated sure. a group of dudes that work tire- tirelessly in our R and D. Sure, and uh, we're forever dreaming. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a man. You know, there's three dudes that just spent time just purely dreaming shit up, sure. making stuff. Like, um, oh, I'm sure you know, I mean, I got, I got, I run the the. the I got, I'm the guy with the cool three printer. Yeah. Of types, you know, okay. Just, just yeah. kicking around at home here because I printed them the other week. Right. You know, that's the internal bit. That's the impact stuff. Sure. And uh, and this is um, the external part. So yeah, we, you know, the printers running right at the moment. Yeah, yeah they're, they're running 24 hours a day printing up um, prototypes. Amazing. Um, like, actually, we're going to the US in uh, like six weeks purely for a try on, like prototype try on. Um, nice. Just because, man, you know, you need access to people that know that our products, um, it, we, you know, um, also flying regularly. Sure. We're selecting some key people that have some funny head shapes that. It's important to make sure we can get a helmet fit. Sure. And, um, so yeah, yeah. When we come and when we have been flying around the, the country for the last six months, so we we went to Arizona in October with prototypes wow. to try on, and then we went to PIA with prototypes to try on, and then now we're coming back to um, the states just to try helmets on people. Then they're not kind of like these products. We're just discovering. Sure. It's a bit like building a bathroom. If you ever had to renovate a bathroom, it is a horrible job because <laughs> it's a very tiny room that takes five different, six different trades people to build, and it costs a shit ton of money. But it's all very small. Sure. And helmet stuff for us now we're talking really tiny detail that actually make a really big difference. Sure. And um, and this is the kind of shit that we're chasing at the minute. Sure. We feel that um. Um, yeah, we haven't cracked the code by any means, um, and there's more more fun to be had. And this is a very popular gyro saying, right? Yeah, um, more yeah. fun to be had. Yes, discovering shit. Absolutely. You know? Well, the one of the coolest yeah. things and one of my favorite things about the sport is that it draws on knowledge from outside the sport through all these amazing mm-hmm. people that have a similar goal, which when you boil it down is to go have fucking fun with their friends. Right. 
Yeah, that's absolutely. That's why we all got yeah. in it. And now you take people with design and engineering skills and all these different ways that they can bring this to the mm-hmm. sport. And skydiving is filled with incredibly talented people in every aspect. And what you end mm-hmm. up with is canopies by companies like Gyro and helmets by mm-hmm. Cookie. And you know, so you get all these amazing things because you had a bunch of people that were just out for a good time. Yeah, yeah. And you want to get in the weeds for a bit? Yeah. Yeah, so and long story short is um twenty like this is when I held up that prototype, this little rigger here. Yeah. Like this little bit here, oh mate, there's oh what are we 2023, 20, 2014, what's that? Man, there's eight years worth of R and D like in building internal shit. Sure. So and um so just I mean, you know, this might be for the for the techie guys out there, go girls that want to hear a little bit of the engineering backstory. Let me throw it out there. The, the French Parachute Federation with the French government said, if you're going to put a helmet on a student, it's got to have a certification. Sure. Once you have a licensed skydiver, we don't care because our rules say, wear whatever you want. And that's <laughs> the rules pretty much around the planet. Get to a certain level, get a rating or a license. We don't care. You don't have to wear a helmet. So the government and the federation just started designing a helmet standard. And um, and then what they do is they bring, once they get the nuts and bolts um, underway, they bring the manufacturers in to go and have their take on it. Because at the end of the day, manufacturers, well, they build a standard. Manufacturers have to build stuff to the standard. Sure. So we had some meetings in 2015 with the French Parachute Federation and government. They're building it like revision standards for helmets. We knew nothing about them, but we'd actually started working on impact protection in 2013. Mm. And we're like, oh, and we've done a bit of testing in New Zealand and a lab. Like, oh, this could be good. Anyway, it was definitely a challenge. So we had one of these meetings and then we had a few changes and we had to go and like get schooled on the engineering about impact protection. Um, and then when we were attending these meetings as well, some of the things that they're bringing up, we actually built them and then went, oh, look, you know, we're not so you know, happy about it. And I'll give you, because we're skydivers too, we're kind of like, okay. And one of them was um, they wanted a snag test. Um, that was a, uh, let me think, it was a 0.5 millimeter line waved over the helmet can't catch. And I went, look, man, student parachutes, most of my student parachutes had Dacron line that were about the size of your finger. Sure. But most parachutes, student parachutes these days are like seven twenty-five pound spectra or something along those lines. We said, "Hey, look, how about you use a seven twenty-five pound spectra, which has a dimension of three millimeters by one, put that under tension like you suggested, then wave that under the helmet as you guide because that's actually a parachute line. Sure. And that's what you want to test for." And then the other one was retention. There was a buckle test. There was automatic release. Anyway, we kind of demonstrated that it wasn't a great idea. Right. Automatic releases is like having an automatic ejection seat <laughs> in a jet fighter. So you're flying along and suddenly this thing goes, oh, you're gone. Don't <laughs> like, no, you get to choose when you want to eject? Right. So we went, hey, look, um, Let's not have something automated that you've got to have parameters around. 
let's make the buckle so that if you need to eject it under a load, you can. Yeah. You unclip it. And there is a standard for that buckle, and it's in other sports. We went, just use that one. Because once you get a load on it, if you are hung up, undo the clip, the thing will release. Looking back at some of our buckles, they won't release under load. Mm. They don't. The moment you put a lot of force on them, they'll hung up. Sure. You can try and squeeze that little tab all you like. That thing's not coming undone. Uh, right. So now all our buckles are all got that kind of load-rated buckle. You would know it. It's just there. Sure. You know, just what is what it is. So that's standard. And in the moment um, they ticked the box and the government went, yeah, they went, hey, have you built that helmet yet? They were like, oh, <laughs> you just body released that thing a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, mate, we're doing that. And then, the, you know, and then, so, however, the thing about helmet standards, you know, the jury is still out on impact protection. Sure. Yep, the jury is still out. It's a bit like getting a Harley and putting no helmet on in Florida and riding down the street. You're happy. All right, I get it. You are as happy as a pig in shit, mate. The wind blowing in, well, yeah, you know, happy days. If you come off. God, the hand of God will take care of you, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Right? Sure. Um, and um, so, the jury's still out about impact protection. The thing well, about I, our sport, you I get would to think. I would think with impact protection, you are talking about so many variables and so many extra directions and so many varying speeds. At, at what point do you need to be impact protected to, you know, 100 sure. kilometers an hour, 150, sure. 200, 500? I mean. And listen, to build helmets that protect you, like you were just suggesting, that wouldn't physically be viable to make. We wouldn't no. wear them. Well, and it You'd have a perfectly preserved head and the body would be gone. <laughs> there you go, mate, for sure. And think about all our helmets that are on the market today. They do have their limitations. Sure. And most of them are this. And this is as simple as it gets, except for kayaking. If you imagine, you've heard of the, the unfortunate incidents where people have been drinking and the one-punch kills. Sure. Someone gets whacked from behind. They fall over. Now. They're dying, right? Sure. So most of the impact testing is imagine if you're the average height of a person might be like five foot ten, you know, males and females included, you know. Say it's about one point six meters high in metric. Imagine standing up or being that tall and just falling over and hitting your head. Mm. That's the kind of impact force that the majority of helmets in the world are tested to. Sure. If you're standing up straight and fall over and bang your head, the helmet is to protect you for that level of impact. Exceed sure. it, oh, it's not going to help you. Sure. You're going to get a concussion. It's to save you from a traumatic brain injury. However, that all bets are off because sure. you could hit your head in a way that you might have those kind of impacts. Well, so they're the kind of challenges for skydivers, and that's the kind of standard that's floating around. Right? Sure. Well, and I mean, yeah. we're we're in the business of trying to mitigate risks as much as possible, but you can only do so much. And if, if you're the type of person that uh, um, has to play the numbers game with risks that much, chances yeah. are skydiving is not your sport. It's a risky sport. Sure. I can yeah. go and buy a VK-75 and go and tear it up. Yes. 
Absolutely, uh, you know, uh, but you know, I, I can also uh, uh, get on a kid's scooter, uh, get going too fast down the street, and eat shit at the lamppost in the corner, and I'm just as dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, from our perspective, being a helmet manufacturer, um, you know, we have to go on one technical challenge. It's the Pepsi challenge. Try and build the shit as small as it can and get to achieve those kind of impact ratings like we are just talking about. Sure. Because we know volume is the biggest killer in our sport. Big helmets, lots of drag, uh, high weight, opening shot, oh, that hurt your neck. Yep. Mate, we're, we're in the business of making, trying to develop shit that's close-fitting, meets those helmet impact requirements, that's really conducive to the kind of shit that we like to do, and sure. that's flying fast and open in parachutes. Yep, yep. Well, I can't yep. wait to see the the evolution as it continues because, again, uh, looking through the lens of all this time in the sport, I never would have seen the equipment evolving like it has. And uh, uh, I can't wait to see where it goes next. And speaking of, how do people uh, now, especially for like all the people in the beginners scouting forum that listen, how do they find out about cookie helmets? What's going to be good for them? How do they find you guys on social media? How do they buy those helmets? How do they test them? All that stuff. Yeah, no, Brianna. Um, so flycookie.com is definitely the website to visit. It's a little bit of an old website with a couple of new fancy tweaks on the front. Um, look, that's the shot. But remember, man, we've got a great network of dealers. Um, globally, so definitely. First off, if you're thinking about where you bought your parachute or you bought your block cord or your closing loop or something, go to those guys first. It's your first port of call because those guys are going to give you that that local um, customer support that we can't do, give you from Australia. Sure. Um, um, socially, no brainer. Cookie helmets on on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, we're about to release our Instagram mount. Um, don't hassle us about when it's coming. We're well, we Jeremy's still machining that shit right today. Right. Putting an extra hole in because there's some like light at the bottom of it. Right. Um, they'll be coming soon. Insta 360 mounts for the roller mount. Um, yeah, there'll be a few little tweaky products coming out through the summer. Um, also too, man, we got roadshow tours in America. With uh, Nick Wright and Jake Jensen. Nice. They'll be kicking around the States. And also um, Al and Pixie Hodgson in Europe. Um, I think they're in Slovakia at the minute. Just gorgeous drop zones. Amazing people living the dream. I wish I could be there with them. <laughs> um, yeah, man, that pretty much sums it up. There, That's Dan. fantastic. Have you got any off the cuff questions, you know? Like, uh, uh, honestly. Uh, honestly, I think we've kind of touched the bases on pretty much everything I wanted to hear. Uh, the big thing, too, is is uh, um, kind of just getting the origin story. I love knowing where all this stuff originally came from, and especially because, like I said, I can kind of track my evolution through the sport by what equipment I had at the time. And having had so many of your boxes and all that stuff all the way through, and now my G3 for being in the tunnel and all that, it's it's kind of neat to be able to talk to uh, one of the main people behind something like that because it's an iconic piece of equipment that I've had my entire career. Yeah, sure. Look, I think, yeah, I appreciate those kind words. Um, you know, yeah, totally. I mean, <laughs> we were just the right place at the right time. 
yeah, man. listening to people way back then. Um, yeah, we're still trying to get I mean, creative. You know, if you if you look back at all those amazing friends that we know within the sport, you talk about Omar and Olaf, and you talk about, you know, the belly flying, airspeed dynasty, you know, and then now we've got a whole tunnel dynasty kicking around. Those guys and people are inspiring. I met Boris, you know, the ISG owner, boss, manufacturer the other yep. month. Oh, dude, talk about... Talk about an engineering scientist, that man. And, um, um, you know, without these people, I mean, the list is on, goes on and on, like from the gear equipment manufacturers, you know, that are oh, all yeah. just giving it some curry, dreaming up what will be next. Um, I'll tell you one thing that I saw at PIA, if you want to throw this in or not, and that was from Paratech, Stefan from Paratech, German manufacturer, built a, um, a um, RDS system with a magnet that was just off the charts amazing. That thing was, um, everyone went, whoa, about time we saw something so revolutionary, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, incorporated a magnet and a, a, a quickly, you pull the middle of the slide, boom, it's off, and then you pretty much can throw your slider at your lines and the magnet's going, and <laughs> it's back on again, seriously. So... Mate, that pretty much sums it up, mate. I'll tell you what, it's been, a, I know you've been chasing me for a couple of years and I was talking to Cole today out of the blue about you and your effect that you've had um, in the skydiving world by one, building, not building, by presenting amazing podcasts to the masses. Um, so, yeah, man, let me give you some props for, for being a fucking cool legend and uh -huh. um, definitely dragging people like my sorry ass to come and talk rubbish <laughs> I think it's rubbish about the odds and sods of skydiving. Um, well, I promise you nobody else thinks it's rubbish. And this is like we uh, discussed yesterday. This is where I get such a kick out of it because this is me getting to have literally the biggest fucking bonfire chat on the planet because one day I'm talking to Australia, the next day I'm talking to the States, the next day I'm somewhere in Europe talking to these amazing people that have all been brought together by the same drive, which again is cool people and fun activities. And it's, yeah, um, man, nice it's, work. I love uh, the work as I do with all the other lads too. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, Jason, I honestly, I thank you so much for taking the time. I know you just had to feed the kids and you've got them trying to be quiet in the background while we shoot the shit. So thank do, you so mate. much. Yeah, yeah. All right. Happy days, mate. Hey, thanks again, Dean. Take care, right? And you nice too. to finally meet you too. Yes, absolutely. You take care, Jason. All right, mate. See you. See well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually, brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs rigging courses, and more by Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. 
by Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.